Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Ben Wong. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Ellison Hare is a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania who has an immense passion for caring for and connecting with the others. In this week's episode, she tells the story of the identity crisis that occurred in high school when she was told she wasn't good enough to be a professional cellist. This crisis brought her to a pre-med track at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, where she majored in psychology and worked in a research lab that was just featured in the Netflix documentary, Babies. The lab studies the way infants acquire language through statistical learning, and her personal research shows the impact that music exposure can have on a baby's ability to acquire language. She shares the gratitude that she now has for this identity crisis as a letter to medicine, a field that also allows her to connect and provide care, but on a larger scale than music. We also dive into the power of reflection, the necessity of creative outlets, and the importance of framing your self-talk around behavior rather than identity. This one touches on so many different topics and is quite insightful into the world that is medical school, so we really think you will enjoy We'd really appreciate if you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcast, as it really helps the podcast grow. We hope you enjoy this week's episode of Discover More with us and Allison Hare. Thank you. Good morning, Allison. Welcome to the show. Thank you for taking out of your valuable time as a medical student to do this on a random Saturday. So I know from our previous engagements and our conversations, I know you thought about and you almost became a professional celloist before you took this hard pivot to become a future physician. So can you talk about that decision-making process and maybe what have happened that caused the decision? Yeah. So it was actually really, it was a long time ago. Um, this was back when I was a senior in high school, actually. Um, and... For the longest time, I had wanted to become a professional cellist because it was really the only thing I'd had my sights set on. Like, I loved playing the cello. It was a part of my identity. It's what I felt like defined me as a person. And I just couldn't envision another way to spend my life because I felt the most joy out of playing music than like anything else. And so I'd actually like gone through the whole process of applying to music schools and going to auditions. A couple of them were okay, a couple of them didn't go very well. I got some pretty harsh feedback, which at the time I wasn't used to because everyone in Minnesota has the classic Minnesota nice sort of mentality where they aren't direct with what they're really thinking. And because I think so much of my identity was wrapped up in being good, or so I thought, at the cello, it was a really harsh thing for me to go through at the time. Um, and I had this moment of crisis. I was just in 12th grade, but I felt like my entire future had been stripped away from me and I didn't know where to go from there. I didn't know what I should do with my life. Like literally no clue. I hadn't put any thought into this. And sort of like in that moment, moment of panic, I looked around to what all of my friends were doing. And at the time I was in all of these like AP classes, everyone around me wanted to become a doctor one day as they do. And I was like, well, I guess I could try that. Like, 
I have nothing else going for me at this point, or so I thought at the time. I don't know. I, uh, I guess at that point, I realized that every door was still open to me as someone as a senior in high school, which was not an opportunity that I would have going forward in life. Like once I entered college and chose my major, like my path would slowly start to narrow, right? And I thought, oh, it would be really cool if I could at least like give this a try, right? So I ended up getting to college at UW. I ended up, you know, getting more or less involved in like the sort of classic pre-med things. Like I would volunteer at the hospital. I worked as an EMT for a while. I was in all these various like interest groups. And slowly I started to realize that it was something that I actually like truly loved. Like I loved being able to connect with people. I loved having some sort of authority and like decision-making process over getting people to a better place in terms of their health. And just sort of by chance, it, it ended up being a career that I really truly like put my whole soul into. And I think sort of like defines my life going forward. Um, and it was just one of those crazy things that sort of ended up happening where at the time as like a 12th grader in high school, I never would have had that insight that I was going to be such a great match. But ultimately, like I said, it's just become like my entire life. So it ended up working out really well. Yeah, and I think, of course, there is a difference between correlation and causation. But from my experience and the people I've met, often gifted musicians and people with gifted talents in certain areas, that often spills over to different areas of their lives. Mm-hmm. And you, Alice and Harry, you've had the intellectual hardware to even pursue multiple AP classes, to be in a city where they even offer multiple AP classes. And you've had the the genetic pull in a sense to support your pursuit in because not everyone just because oh yeah sure my professional music career didn't work out let's just become a doctor yeah that i think statement itself is pretty audacious and a lot of people even if they have the desire they don't have the ability to match with their desire right Mm -hmm. there's always that disparity and disconnection between your capability and your interest Mm -hmm. and my question is is it your family or how come you've had this inheritance and this early on exposure to music especially like orchestra and cello, which is a pretty niche, I would say, classical genre. Not everyone have the exposure to. So mm-hmm. can you talk about, is it your family? Is it your interest? And how did that play out for you? Yeah, I mean, it was really just something that my parents um, kind of valued when I was growing up. Um, they wanted to make sure my sister and I had all the opportunities in the world. And something that was really stressed in my school district at the time was being involved in music and like different extracurriculars because it was a very like good school district. So sort of like on a whim, they were like, oh, you and your sister should sign up for cello or violin. And I think I told you guys this earlier today, but I chose the cello because you get to sit down when you play it. And it was really <laughs> lazy. So like it wasn't this decision that was founded in like something profound in the way that it ended up. But yeah, it ended up having such a, an amazing impact on my life. And even though obviously I'm not a professional cellist right now, I'm still pretty involved in the music community here in Philly. And I was in college as well. Like I played in this like all university orchestra throughout my time at Madison. And then when I got to Philly, um, there's actually a pen med orchestra that I play in, which is such a classic pen thing. But yeah, I've been playing in that on and off um, in the past two and a half years that I've been here. And I'm also involved in several ensembles. There's this Doctors Who Create conference in a couple weeks that I'll be playing at with a few other people in this like performance thing because a lot of people in medicine do have all of these old sort of hobbies and music or whatever, art, like various, you know, creative outlets that they can no longer really practice because they're spending so much time in medicine and in the hospital. So this, you know, this group decided to put on this conference to 
engage physicians and other people in healthcare in this sort of more creative capacity because they no longer have that outlet sort of to like express the way, you know, have emotions or view the world in a way that you can't with medicine. So I'm really excited about that. And I think I found a really nice balance between doing what I need to do in my career in medicine in order to ultimately be successful, but also still engage in the parts of myself that I really missed in my initial decision to switch from music to medicine because it is a really important part of me and over the past year I've been in what they call like the clerkship year of med school which is where you're in the hospital essentially like all day every day Um, and I didn't play the cello the entire time and I just felt like a part of me was missing so it feels really good to kind of get back into that and feel like my entire identity is being expressed once more in the way that it hasn't been for like a really long time. I find it really important to continue on with those parts that became such a big part of you throughout the time. Um, I personally also played the viola through high school and although didn't continue at a higher level, it still became like a fundamental part of who I am. Similar with the guitar, not playing for the longest time, you just feel that something's off. I think especially in a career that's as medicine heavy and analytical as medicine may be it's important to have that creative outlet yeah and one of the things that you mentioned that i'm really curious about especially with my experience with music is the profound impact it had on you um i'd wonder if you could like dive into that a little more of what it taught you how it helped you prepare for a career in medicine and what the overall impact has been on you yeah totally so thinking back to when i first started playing when i was like eight or nine or whatever it was really the first thing that i felt like i had ownership over and not something that my parents were just telling me to do. Like I was actually doing it because I genuinely enjoyed it. And I just like never had that experience before. So I would practice for like hours a day and I would really enjoy going to orchestra practice or whatever. And as I grew older, it became an outlet for me to learn different soft skills like leadership, accountability, teamwork, the things that you need in order to be a successful player and really honing on your skills as a stringed instrument player. Um, are things that I think carried over into a lot of different aspects of my life and shaped me into the person that I am. Something I didn't realize until I think I was a senior in college was how much playing allowed me to connect with other people, both in the orchestra itself and for the people that I was playing for. Um, I have a couple examples of that. So I think when I was like a sophomore in high school, I played this concerto, which for the non-music literate is essentially like you playing a solo in front of an entire crowd and like the entire orchestra is like your accompaniment, right? So I was playing this concerto when I was a sophomore and it's been one of those memories for my family that they kind of talk about to this day. Just like the ability to connect, I think the piece was, I forget, it was like something in Saint Son, but the ability to connect with so many people in the audience and have them take such a profound sort of memory of it that carried forward years later was really cool for me. And I can't really think of another way in which I could connect with so many people simultaneously all at once than through this like really beautiful song that I had the opportunity to play. And then the second thing I can really think of to you know provide an example of this, I was a senior in college and at the time I was preparing to apply for medical school and wanted to find more opportunities to make myself a more competitive applicant, as they say. So I went to this local hospice group um, in an effort to try to volunteer my time because it would have been really good for me to get more experience in seeing that side of healthcare. And so I went and 
while I had, I had wanted to get involved in a more like healthcare delivery capacity, what they were really in need of and looking for was people who could play musical instruments. And at the time, I was still feeling a little disgruntled with myself for the decision to have given up a career in music over medicine because I had felt like I had sort of let go of a dream in a way. But because they needed musicians so desperately, I was like, okay, like I guess I'll like play the cello for these these patients and see what happens. So I like brought out the old cello for the first time in like a year, and I was like, all right, like here we go again. And the first patient that I got was this like elderly uh, woman who um, back in the day in her heyday was a wedding singer. And, you know, obviously music had been a really big part of her life, but based on the aging process and dementia and all of that, she was at a point where she was no longer really communicating or a version of herself that her family could even recognize anymore. So I started playing for her um, and it was really, really cool. After a couple of sessions of me just playing whatever, like Ave Maria, like whatever songs I had in my book, um, she sort of like became sentient and she would start to like open her eyes. And there was like one particular session where she started singing along to Ave Maria, which was such a precious moment to me. I like, I obviously like didn't go into that experience with the intention of having that experience, but just being able to like provide that, I guess, like happiness or level of awareness for another human being to, you know, remember something that they had obviously like cared about so deeply when they were in a prior part of their life meant everything to me. And in that moment, I kind of realized, you know, I don't have to give up on the part of music that allowed me to connect with other people when I go into medicine. Like I can still touch people in a way that's like deep and profound and meaningful and real. And even if it's not through the cello, like just being a lending ear to someone that's going through a really difficult time or experience or providing emotional support or just, you know, showing someone that I care can have that same impact. And I can do that with medicine. And that's something that I've kind of found time and time again, now that I've actually been in the wards and like taking care of real people. I think that's the thing that truly just like motivates me more than anything in life than to have those real connections and to help people who are really struggling you know, like I said, it's not necessarily going to be through music and the majority anymore, but that's okay. And I've sort of like made peace with my ultimate decision to pivot my career path. Yeah, I think there are so many similar characteristics between music and medicine, right? Because the people who want to pursue a career in physicians to become a doctor because you want to create that real deep level of connection between patients and yourself to by providing a level of care that they need. And with music, you're providing the level of satisfaction, the level of fulfillment, the level of joy to the listeners, to the to your fan base. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge fan of like EDM, like house music and trance music. And I remember I had this conversation with a friend who really upset me. He said, I was like, oh, do you listen to EDM? And he said, oh, no, I don't listen to uh, songs that are comprised of a bunch of noises. Yeah. You know, that was deeply offensive to me because music is valid and music is powerful because it's entirely predicated based on the ex- listener's experience. And if there is fan base out there, enjoy like, you know, mumble rap or EDM, whatever. Sure, they may be not objectively the classical music or they may be not be like Wu-Tang Clan, whatever. However, as long as people are retrieving and obtaining joy out of it, it yeah. is music, right? Yeah. The same way, which you alluded to, where 
you may have lost that musical outlet. You're not a professional celloist. You're providing that professional auditorium, that music experience. However, you're still providing a level of care that satisfies the needs of the people that you're catering towards. Yeah, no, it was it was something that I'd actually written about in my personal statement for medical school because it had such a profound impact on me. It was never one of those things that I felt like I was faking. Like in the way that that experience had started out is just sort of a way to boost my resume in order to become a better, better medical school applicant. It turned into such such a like real thing that I used as a way to identify myself going forward. So yeah, no, I'm I'm happy that you were able to like see that because it really like it really was such a powerful experience for me. And I'm yeah, I'm just grateful like to have had the opportunity to connect with people like that and to still be able to connect. Absolutely. And one thing that you mentioned is the driving force for both medicine and music is, I guess, the ability to help other people. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you knew from the start of I'm playing music because it can help connect with other people, because it can help heal other people? Or is that something that you kind of found in the evolution of your experience with it? Because even with medicine as well, was that kind of a driving force or was this as you were experiencing, as you were carrying out medicine and working with patients, giving that care, something that you found on? Because in our previous conversation a couple hours ago, we talked a lot about values and kind of alignment of those things. Yeah. Are you kind of finding those values as you're moving towards the specific thing or especially such early on? I mean, I don't think Mm -hmm. you definitely seem a lot more self-reflective than almost anyone I've met. At such an early age, rarely do we reflect on what our values are, where we're trying to go. So mm-hmm. I'm really curious as to what your process of, of this something that you found as you were going or something yeah. you like consciously thought through before taking those specific actions. Yeah, no, that's a great question. For music, certainly it was not something that I had consciously decided to do based on how I could connect with others. As I just mentioned, it was because I wanted to sit down and my parents wanted me to be like involved. You know, it evolved with time and mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that my parents had always instilled in me was to be a giving person and to create positivity and goodness in the world where it didn't exist before. And I didn't always know like what that looked like as a kid. Like I didn't know how I was going to do that with my career or my hobbies, but I think it's something that deep down I always knew that I wanted to get out of life, but I just didn't know how that was going to manifest. And, you know, as I had shared, medicine initially wasn't something for me that came from a good or noble place. It was something I did because I felt like my future had been stripped from me based on how things went down with my musical career. And it came from a place of insecurity. I felt like if I, you know, could successfully pull off going to medical school and becoming a physician, then no one could possibly look at me and tell me that, I was a failure and the way that I felt like I was a failure from the way that things went with the cello, right? It did not come from a place of, I want to give back to others and connect with people as you had just described. But with time, just the ability to do that showed me how much I really did care about that aspect of my life. And I felt so fortunate to have had an outlet to connect with people in the way that I did um, because it's something that I was never even really able to envision, yet it's somehow so perfectly aligned with the values that my parents had instilled within me, you know? And I think going forward, now that I have the clarity of, you know, this is why I want to do this rather than this is something I feel like I have to do, I think it's going to be a lot easier for me to sort of 
make my decisions with that ultimate end goal in mind of I want to be able to connect with others. I want to be able to improve the way that the world and the healthcare system works because that's what I believe in and that's what it, that's what's at my core. I just didn't have the experience and foresight and the ability to reflect and, you know, understand myself at that prior age to really know that's where I was going. But I also think that would be a pretty high bar to have for like a fourth grader or twelfth grader. Certainly. I don't know. Yeah, I'm really glad you made that point or it was a really insightful point that you were kind of able to take the valuable pieces away from the music career once you dissociated from it as a career because I had a very Mm -hmm. similar experience coming out of college uh, kind of light at the end of the tunnel for the last 16 years of my education was become a CPA and pass the CPA exam, but I actually wasn't able to pass it. I took the exam four times, missed it by two and three points respectively. So eventually kind of had that identity crisis similar to what you were reflecting on of, hey, what am I going to do? I've been working at this for so long. It's kind of like a crisis of, you know, you don't really know which way you were going to go. However, now that I've transitioned into kind of closed that door and accepted the new door to be walking through, I think it's really valuable to take the important pieces away or you can really find the enjoyment in what you used to do. So Mm. at the time, because I was studying for so long and like put so much pressure on that career, I wasn't able to enjoy it. But now I'm doing it on the side with my grandpa and like Mm. taking out the enjoyment of connecting with other clients and helping my family. So it's really valuable of once you have that perspective, once you have that reflection, you can really Mm. hone in on the things that you're enjoying or the parts that you really do find valuable. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a thing in life, like just to be able to take both the good and the bad experiences and make the very most of them. And it's sometimes really harsh because you do make, you make your career such a big part of your identity that it can almost feel impossible to shift your mentality and think, okay, like if I'm not a CPA, what else can I be? Because I've put so much time and effort into this. There's, there's something that I read about recently. I think it was like, sunk cost right like if you invest x amount of time in something you feel like there has to be some sort of payout at the end otherwise the whole thing wasn't worth it right like Mm -hmm. why bother studying for this exam for hundreds of hours when ultimately you didn't get the result that you wanted but it sounds like for you like you were able to get what you needed out of that experience even if it wasn't what you had like originally sort of pinned on your future board as this is what needs to happen Mm -hmm. you know life always takes you in these directions that you can't anticipate and it sucks like sometimes you pin so many things on this dream that you form for yourself but that's not the plan that was in place for you and it can be a really really tough pill to swallow and something that I've had to do many times throughout my life not just with music but I think ultimately the future that you do have in store is better than anything you ever could have imagined or at least that's you know been my experience and there's so much that life has to offer that you can't even anticipate and mm-hmm. that's yeah that's just something that I think life life teaches you with time and something I couldn't have seen even nine months ago but is as clear as day now mm-hmm. I couldn't agree anymore I mean there's it really boils down to a trust of the things happening or at least things will happen for a reason if you give them a reason so I recognize that I did everything in my power to take that exam and I couldn't have done anything more to achieve that outcome Mm -hmm. so when it doesn't happen it's the trust that it wasn't meant to be and often I think almost in all of the stories that we've all shared in the past 
there's always a gratitude on the other side. Like I personally would have never had this podcast or never had the freedom that I have now if I had gone that path. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important just the reflection element of all of that mm-hmm. and really instilling the lessons away from whatever positives, negatives, successes, or failures life may bring your way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think to both of you guys, I think it's the idea of identity association. Mm-hmm. And that's like pretty prevalent in the mental health realm where, and this applies to like communications in a fight where let's say you get mad at someone, right? Mm-hmm. And then you may say the word, you're selfish. Yeah. But you're not selfish by saying you're selfish, attach the association of selfishness to you as a human being. Rather, you should have said what you did was selfish. Right. Right. You need to disconnect the associative identity from your act. Mm. So what you did was selfish, but you're not selfish because you're a holistic human being. Right. Mm. And then like talked about you failed at taking the CPA exam, but you're not a failure. The act of taking the CPA failed. Oftentimes you have such this mental health epidemic crisis because people cannot they associate up their worth on their behaviors on their actions on their achievements on their careers that when something doesn't work out your the definition of who you are have also failed along with that mm. and it's a very dangerous slope so i thought that was relevant mm-hmm. i'm really glad you mentioned that because that's something i've noticed both in myself as a lot of as well as a lot of the people i care about is say you drop, you shuffle your papers off the table and you say, God, I'm so stupid. Yeah. That in, inherently becomes like negative self-talk that you begin to believe about yourself. And I almost have started calling out, you know, my mom, my girlfriend, my brother of, you're not stupid. What you did might've been stupid, but it's inherently very dangerous to be saying that of, say you make five mistakes a day. If you're telling yourself, I'm so stupid five times a day, inevitably that trickling over five years becomes a really dangerous habit. Um, which is something that I'm consciously always trying to work on, making sure you're framing your self-talk or your self-statements appropriately to actually describe and not really impacting your self-belief. You start to internalize that with time. My best friend Mm -hmm. and I actually talk about this a lot, where there's this concept called upper limiting, which is where you tend to internalize the things that you do wrong or the things that go poorly as things that are inherent to yourself because you yourself are a failure versus the things that go well for you is just by luck, right? Like, oh, I did so well on that exam because I was given like this random set of questions that happened to really align with the things that I'd studied the night before. You, you tend to have this bias towards like, or against yourself, mm-hmm. which doesn't make any sense. Like it's not rational, but I think it's something that we all do in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really unfair because you tend to like, you tend to listen when you hear the same message over and over again. And that's something that I've experienced. And I think a lot of my classmates have because, you know, the competitive environment of medical school predisposes you to think that, you know, <laughs> you're a failure. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, yeah, I think it invariably leads to like self-fulfilling legacy, right? And yeah. Because I am stupid, therefore I am, you know, I think therefore I am. And also, I think for the communication aspect, you have to think about when you say you're stupid or you're selfish versus what you did was selfish. Think about as a recipient of that message, how you feel. Now you're pissed off. Like, oh, now this person calling me out. My girlfriend's calling me shit. You know, now I'm offended, which triggers my negative responses. And then now I'm becoming defensive. You're saying all these harsh words that you're going to regret afterwards. Mm-hmm. So even though it's like a play on words in a bit, it's, it's simply about how to articulate your words, how to arrange these couple adjectives and nouns. It really creates like a long lasting impact yeah. for you and for the person you're communicating to. Because communication is based on both ends of the bridge. It takes collective effort to make the communication work. Yeah. So I think it is very powerful what you're saying here. And then it's very important to 
disconnect and dissociate yourself from your act because that's an act. Yeah. It's not who you are, you know? Yeah. So I would yeah. like to add with that, uh, this actually really reminds me of the work by Brene Brown that my mm-hmm. girlfriend and I were listening to on the way back from our road trip. Mm-hmm. And she argues that there's two components being guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And guilt is action-based. So it's built around the things that you're doing. And guilt is inherently productive because it encourages you to change your action. Whereas shame is built around identity. And that's uh, uh, ultimately negative and destructive because it's you know, shame around who you are as a person, around your identity. So mm-hmm. she says by having that conscious flip of embracing guilt and doing the things that you know you should be doing and that you know are in alignment with the things you believe, that's ultimately productive because it allows change. Whereas shame gets you stuck in that shame spiral of identity, I am, I am stupid, I am selfish. Whereas focusing on the actions really creates positive change. So I thought that really tied in with a lot of the stuff we were talking about. It's Brene Brown. She's uh, she's brilliant. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that leads to my next question because you've had this opportunity of pursuing medicine after you pivot and then realize it's a very fulfilling, providing experience for you. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like picking your major in college, right? You wanted to pick something that's fulfilling, that's intellectually stimulating for you. So can you talk about some of the experience and achievements you've learned or went through uh, in the process? So yeah, so I worked for a lab for three or four years in college with Dr. Jenny Safran, who's a professor of psychology at UW-Madison, um, and she studies the way that infants acquire language, which is such a niche topic, but so interesting. She essentially published this landmark paper in the 90s on something called statistical learning, uh, which is the idea that babies are actually keeping track of the syllables that they hear in a language. and will make associations of certain syllables with each other based on how frequently they hear those syllables co-occurring. And that's sort of how they decipher what the words of a language are versus like what are not words. So in case that's not clear, like like an example of this is the phrase uh, pretty baby, something a baby might hear. The babies would hear the syllables pre and t together far more often than they would hear the syllables t and bay because those cross a word boundary and don't typically co-occur. Yeah, mm-hmm. so so that's what she posits is that that's one of the mechanisms through which babies acquire language with time. Then demonstrated that you know infants acquire language at a rate far more efficient than adults can, and I think that's kind of evident to um, our lived experiences. Like I personally, as a as someone who tried to learn French in high school, had a really difficult time. But obviously, you know, when you're like one or two years old, you pick up hundreds of words every month or whatever. So it's just it's a really interesting sort of like developmental period to study. And something that I wanted to do in the lab was connect in my experience with music, just because you know I've always been interested in how music has impacted me as an individual and. I wanted to ask the question, how does musical exposure impact babies' ability to acquire language? So I won't get into the details because I don't think it's the most interesting part of this, but what I ultimately did was create this sort of like musical exposure where babies heard like a fake language made up of musical notes. And then for some of the babies, I would later play uh, this like made up language made of words. And then for other babies, I wouldn't play this, the musical portion. And for the babies that had heard the music prior to the new language that had sort of predisposed them to learn the language at a 
more efficient way, they actually did better in an, an ultimate test of how well they had acquired the words, uh, which I thought was super cool because there had never been a study previously that demonstrated um, that there can be sort of that like cross transference between musical input and like uh, linguistic input before in the way that babies are able to learn what words are. But it just, I think, speaks to how incredible their language learning abilities are. And it was really cool as a senior in college to be able to, you know, run my own experiment and sort of like put the results out there. I'm so grateful that, you know, I was able to sort of get into the weeds with such a niche topic. And although I don't know that it's determined where I go with my career from here on out, like it's so cool to be able to participate in the scientific process and something that I'm so happy I was able to do while I was in college. Yeah. And then so Aiden and myself, just to quickly comment, Mm -hmm. we often talk about the idea where once you dissociate the outcome and just enjoy the process, Mm -hmm. the process and journey becomes so much more fulfilling because you're not in it because you want to become an infant, adolescent, developmental psychologist. You're in it because it's genuinely fascinating for you. And now you have something cool to talk about. Mm -hmm. And for the people out there, if you want to learn more about this topic and this niche topic where Allison studied and what she, the lab she worked at is being featured on Netflix on the documentary called Babies. Mm -hmm. So we encourage the listeners to go check it out. And we will put all the information of hers, research that's relevant in the show episodes and show notes. But yeah, I think that's the one of the reasons why Aiden and myself embarked on this journey, right? Because we didn't start this podcast to become rich, to become Joe Rogan 25.0, because there's a lot of podcasts out there. And we didn't do this to become famous, to get rich, but we did this because we wanted to cultivate our inheriting curiosities. And when you have curiosities in this world and you create a platform to look for avenues to cultivate that, to heighten your curiosities, it's so much fulfilling. And we've learned so much in this process from you, mm-hmm during this interview from all the other previous guests from the books we've read and because we're trying to synthesize the distilled wisdom that's lived by the others in an accelerated format which is the whole mission statement of this podcast Mm -hmm. and so yeah I I think that's extremely fascinating and I definitely lacked the musical talent that you and Aiden has I have no musical gift I'm not telling that for anything and but it's even for me I'm sure it's even more fascinating for people who are in the musical field because yeah, it's, it's a fascinating field. Mm-hmm. And to talk about the language piece, I am multilingual because of all the countries I lived at. Mm-hmm. And my friends would always ask me, oh, how did you pick up those languages? And I always thought that the reason was because as a baby or as a adolescent, as a younger person, your mind is more plastic. Yeah. So you can just observe information and whatever faster. That, that yeah. was my experience. Yeah. And But when people ask me for details and mechanism, I couldn't answer them because it was effortless for me because I've mm-hmm. lived in those respective countries ergo I was able to pick up those languages yeah it was almost like a natural condition that I couldn't really explain Mm -hmm. so on that note it's very interesting to see some of the actual psychology the mechanisms the reasons behind the actual language acquisition process so well on that topic actually one of the big um, research arms in the lab was to study bilingual infants and they found that uh, babies that heard two languages in the house growing up had a more plastic, as you said, representation of what a word can be because there are so many more words to learn. Explained, I think, in part why bilingual babies are so much more efficient at picking up on language as they grow up. And that's been demonstrated in study after study. Um, kids that hear multiple languages are more intelligent in certain ways and can learn because their definitions of what exists in the world is more broad. 
Um, and I think that's why the advent of language immersion schools has become more prominent because everyone now is learning about these things and like, oh, I want my kid to speak German and English or whatever. And they want that sort of like secondary intelligence that comes with that. And it makes me regret not learning a language as like a two-year-old because I certainly can only speak English right now. Yeah. And I think a lot of like the cliches and a lot of things that the parents are recommended by is play music when you're pregnant. Mm. I think, I think, or uh, read books out loud to your kids. That's mm-hmm. when you're pregnant, right? So I think, I mean, cliches are tropes. So a lot of things are definitely based, some sort of scientific base, mm-hmm. but no, it's cool. That's, and I did hear before that once you become like bilingual, it's easier yeah. to become trilingual, quilingual, whatever. Yeah. And then I know the process becomes easier and easier. That's just because English, French, whatever, all Latin based, but I guess your mind just becomes more trained and conditioned to pick up languages faster. Yeah. So Yeah, like you're not cool. learning like the words themselves faster because you're just you're better at that process, but because you're you've actually trained your mind how to learn languages more efficiently. Is there less word boundaries? If you hear two at once, you mentioned like the yeah. pre-T, not T, B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the, like less division between what a word can sound like so you could learn more languages, I guess? Yeah, I think it's more just that like you're getting more sort of variety of the statistical input. So mm-hmm. you're hearing more examples of those word boundaries. So you're sort of better able with more like samples, you're better able to sort of like decipher where the boundaries would lie. Um, and that crosses across languages, and it's not just particular oh, to so one. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, like, really, really cool. No, I wish I learned. I t- tried taking Spanish in high school and college, and it was very, very difficult. Yeah. Like, hands down, my least favorite class, just because I wasn't, you know, ex- yeah. I mean, maybe a more math brain than language brain, but still not having seen any foreign language up until getting there yeah. probably was a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, I had the same experience. I think I took French for three and a half years in high school. And because there's this thing called like the critical period, which is, I think I think it's like ages zero to seven, where for language in particular, you learn it like so much more efficiently because your brain does still have that plasticity to learn. Once you're out of that window, Um, the efficiency at which you learn a new language is so low that you can never become truly fluent. They've done studies where people um, will immigrate to a country that speaks a language other than their original one. And if they move to that country, I think think it's seven. I think prior to the age of seven, they'll ultimately become fluent. But if they move after the age of seven, then they'll always sort of have like an accent or like something that indicates to other people that they're not fluent. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. like really, really challenging to learn after a certain age. And I think why so many of us struggled in high school or college to pick up whatever that second language was. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I would like to move a little past language into, I guess, music, because I know this is a huge part of the way I learn, the way I consume knowledge and even study. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious as to your experience from, I guess, the psych side and even the studying hours and hours in medical school. Do you think music can help? retain knowledge and like get in the flow of getting knowledge absorbed or completing tasks both from your experience and knowledge or education side yeah um i mean this is pure speculation at this point no longer Mm -hmm. backed by years of research from my language lab but i personally found it really helpful there's something i read about one time in the mindset through which you study actually ends up impacting your ability to retain information. So for example, if you, you know, you study in a particular seat in your bedroom, you're going your mind is going to encode like both the information that you learn in that study session along with 
um, the fact that you're sitting in that particular seat. The mind kind of like encodes all of these things together so that ultimately, if you were to take a test on information that you learned in that session at the same location that you like studied it originally, you'll better be able to sort of like reproduce or replicate that information on the exam. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're somewhere else, because that's not where you had encoded that information, you're not going to remember it just as well. Kind of like um, behavioral triggers, I guess. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. So I think um, the same thing could apply to music. Like if you listen to a particular album when you are encoding or like studying for a particular exam, you're going to remember that information more easily if you're also listening to that music when you're taking the test, which isn't always a re- like a yeah. reality that we can have. Might but... be a tough sell. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can I bring my iPod? Yeah, and I, you know, I think it in my like lived experience makes a lot of sense because there are so many albums or songs that I have encoded with emotional moments in my life. Um, like when I hear particular songs, I'll be taken back to that one day and like 2003 or like I'll associate with like this one person because the brain is so interesting in the way that it encodes memories with like different forms of sensory input. It's just, it's something that we do. I think I learned once that um, the part of the brain that encodes memories is physically close to the portion that processes sensory input of smells and sounds, which is why as human beings, we associate these things so intimately with each other. And I think Studying is like one branch of that, but it can apply to like so many other things. And it's so cool. Yeah, I can't agree more with that. Like, I know anytime I hear uh, specific songs from the Beatles one album, I'm like instantly transformed to the first time I like remember hearing those down the beach with my family, I think. Or even songs you see at a concert or things like that. Like it brings you back into that specific time. So Mm -hmm. even maybe not because obviously you can't listen to the songs while you're studying, but almost like a song is like a trigger into your studying mindset. So Mm -hmm. say you're about to go take an exam, listen to the same song that you listen to before you start studying. Yeah. Um, Because I've even heard like if you chew gum while you study, you should chew gum during the exam. If you don't, then you shouldn't. But just Mm -hmm. like conformity or alignment across your modes of studying. Yeah. Which is super interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had this like whole playlist that I had created when I was studying for the MCAT back in college. And for whatever reason, I just, it really did the trick for me. So I listened to it when I was studying for step one a couple months or a couple weeks ago and it did the same thing. So yeah, it's like totally valid, at least in my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. I think each are describing the extreme level of like priming where your primary condition is exactly priming. And yeah, Becky, she her took her step one, which everyone describes as like the one of the most traumatic and difficult experiences ever. Seven hours of grueling session of you're taking one exam, just sitting there and you're five months of extreme effort and everything you've vouched for until this point are being tested in seven hours. It's mm-hmm. seven freaking hours. Like what? You know? And of course, what is like three thousand questions um, or something? Not well, not three thousand on the exam itself. I think it's like two hundred something. Okay. But yeah, like over the course of like the eight weeks or whatever you're studying, you are taking thousands of practice yeah. questions. So for Becky, she to me when I heard it, it sounds so funny, but I know it wasn't funny for her. So for her, she would take priming and her routine so seriously. Yeah. She would wear the exact same outfit for continuously and she would like she would have to study at this exact same spot and she'll listen to the exact same music she would eat the exact same food like all her routine and everything's are exactly to the teeth to replicate the outcome or the habit of or the conditioning the primary you've put into it and she did the similar for she's doing a similar thing for step two in the future mm-hmm. and when you hear that it sounds so extreme 
but what you talked about because there's such a serious commitment it, it definitely makes sense i mean it's almost yeah. it's like a mental it's a mental challenge more than anything like you need to be in the right mindset when you go into that exam because it is so grueling and such a difficult experience um so any benefit that you can give to yourself you kind of have to do and even if it's something as ridiculous as wearing your like lucky socks or listening to your like pump up song before you go into the exam room like you kind of just the human mind isn't rational and doesn't operate rationally you just need to find a way to manipulate it in the way that you want to manipulate it and then you can use that to your advantage yeah and then i also learned this on the priming topic before i move on learns from a podcast where he talks about the power of like visualization and the power of thinking where neurologically your brain cannot distinguish between a memory and this visceral recollection of practice like priming right so when you visualize something so so intensely with the intention and intensity and you do it for long enough you truly visualize it and your body feels it mm-hmm. because mentally how you feel triggers onto your physiological response mm-hmm. now once you think about it then your body feels it because you know your body and mind the connection and all that you know, in the city of that and he talks about where with his character he was the cast for jack for Mortal combat which is a movie and he talked about he spends 120 hours on seven pages of scripts and he would picture the scripts he would picture the the fighting scenes he would picture everything and he would practice them priming them he would uh, visualize them every morning every night to a point where his mind and his body couldn't distinguish them from a fictitious memory to an actual memory so before he went on audition he felt like he actually lived the audition already he felt like he already went through the audition process so when the audition actually came his mind was oh that already happened i already did this audition i'm just doing repeating my memory and he was able to get accepted to this role and obviously like when the millions of us on the line mm-hmm. but that's the reason why i think your study field of psychology is so fascinating because the more i emerge myself in the mental health realm the more i work with my clients and my families and my policy realm where mental health and psychology are the crux of everything right and it is the backbone of every decision we make uh the type of person you are the nature and nurture and all that so mm-hmm. super super fascinating mm-hmm. couldn't agree more there's a lot of i think work that can be done within sort of like psychological manipulation of how we make decisions as human beings which is kind of leads me into my future plans um i'll be taking the year out next year to work within what's called the Penn Med Edge Unit within the Penn Center for Healthcare Innovation, which essentially uses what they call behavioral economics to change the way that clinicians make decisions. Um, it's in like an EMR-based platform, electronic medical record-based platform, where um, they design nudges to like provide suggestions to providers to make better decisions and how they take care of patients because. Human beings don't operate rationally, um, and sometimes we don't have the resources to do so. Um, this nudge unit just sort of like takes that out of your hands. Um, so it, as an example of this, one of their interventions changed the default medication prescription option for providers to be like the cheapest generic option rather than like whatever brand name medication exists out there. And because they like made that you know, seemingly minuscule switch within the EMR, they saved, I think it was like $23 million over Ooh. the course of like a couple years, which is absolutely insane. 
So even though that's like sort of a pivot from what you were referencing, I just think it's interesting that one would expect a provider to choose the cheapest option within the EMR just because it makes the most sense. But people aren't always making the most rational choices for themselves or for their patients. So I'm kind of excited to explore that aspect of it and incorporate my interest in psychology in a way that's more like readily applicable into the field of healthcare and the way that we can improve it as a whole. Yeah, and I think the tricky thing about rationality is, of course, like the classical economism, they argue that every consumer is rational, which has been proven wrong over and over again, yeah. you know, with the new theories and whatnot. And so I asked, one of my major was economics in college, and I specialized in behavior economics. And we do case studies about insurance, how they create the healthcare plan based on the outcome and the behaviors of, of the clientele, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so through that experience and through my studies, what I learned is that rationality is very subjective. If you talk to any consumer and anyone out there, he or she would always argue what they're doing is rational because rationality is self-perceived because no one is going to make an irrational decision. And from the objective point of view, from the area point of view, what they're doing may be irrational, but to themselves at the moment of decision-making, it's always rational. You know, why would I spend 40 extra dollars on certain item? I thought that was the most rational, best decision I could I could make. Therefore, I did it. You know, in retrospect, you're like, oh, that was a dumb decision. So, yeah, I think rationality and psychology and all those are interesting. And yeah, it'd be very cool to see what more we learn through this EMR efficiency optimizing process. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. And I think that acts as a perfect transition into the next chapter of your life, which is, of course, you picked psychology because you wanted to find a fulfilling college holistic experience, and you learned a lot about languages, music, development in undergrad. Of course, you got into your dream school, you know, uh, University of Pennsylvania Medical School. And I'm sure that journey itself was crazy. And now you're in this medical school, your dream school, and now you're submerging yourself with all these experiences that you can only dreamt of, and now you're living it. So we would love to dive a little bit into the medical experience, because I think myself included before I dated Becky, who's a medical student, also our world have this perceived perception and this perceived prestige of what medical school is where i viewed medical school as this mecca the mm-hmm. holy grail of intellectualism the highest achievers the smartest people right just all of the above the the flatter could go on and on and then from what i heard the level of stress the level of vulnerability the level of adversity are mm-hmm. extremely prevalent and extremely heartbearing to a lot of people even in the medical school and becky told me that medical school has the highest depression rate so yeah, I'll love to uh, help debunk some of the misconceptions, misperceptions, and talk about what the extra experience is like. Yeah. Sure. In general, you can never really prepare for an experience that you've dreamed about for so long and what that reality is actually going to look like. So I can't say that my experience so far has been what I was expecting, but I think overall it's been a lot better in a lot of ways and a lot worse in a lot of ways than what I was sort of prepping myself for. For me, the best part has been past year when I was doing my clinical rotations in every specialty and just sort of like being able to like be on the floor and talking to real people and being a part of the the medical team was the most gratifying feeling ever and made me so excited to go into this as a field one day where I don't have to sit in the classroom. But obviously, you know, the hours can get really grueling and the exams that you have to take are absolutely brutal. Like I've been mentioning, I just took step one a couple weeks ago and got through a period of eight weeks where every day I would wake up at 6 a.m., sometimes a little bit later, and study for the next 12 to 14 hours, just every single day. And I've never been through a period of my life where 
I felt so disconnected from what I wanted to do ultimately. Like I was so removed from this ultimate goal of taking care of people and just sitting at my kitchen table and studying every single day. It was just, it was, it was totally brutal. And it's something that you can't really prepare for. Like you kind of just like have to get through it and do it and it sucks, but then it's over and you can kind of move on. But the whole thing for, I don't know, at least for me from medical school has been this idea of delayed gratification where you're kind of just like constantly pushing the things that bring you joy further and further along so that you can like get through this grueling slog of academics and coursework because there's just so much information that you need to learn and know that there's no other way as they say you can like learn everything you need to learn so I've had to put a lot of personal goals and personal priorities on the back burner because I have no other option and in talking to classmates that's been the reality for a lot of them too Like a lot of people are pushing back their weddings, pushing back having kids, pushing back relationships, like whatever, whatever people prioritize, um, which for me, I think has been one of the more difficult aspects, um, just because it does take over such a big portion of your life. You start to not really feel like a person anymore, if that makes sense. For me, especially during my step one study period, because I essentially was training myself to become a machine to regurgitate these facts. I just felt like I was losing a huge part of my identity. And, you know, obviously you can get that back and it's not the end of the world. And I I think it's a sacrifice well worth making, but it sucks. Like, it's really, really hard. You know, not a lot of people really understand that because a lot of people don't have that experience and it can make things really difficult in connecting with people who are in medical school. It's just like, it's a really like nuanced experience. And like I said, there are so many like low lows and high highs and I'll obviously you know sacrifice the lot the lows for the highs every time but that doesn't make the lows any less sucky <laughs> like that's all I can say yeah for the context can you provide a little bit of context about like the structure like the rotations can you talk about like what the rotation is like and then what step one is mm-hmm. and what the general I know every medical school is different but yeah. for a pen med can you explain about the context of what the medical school structure is? Yeah, sure. Um, so Penn does it a little bit differently than other medical schools. Um, what the traditional model is, is you take two years of what they call preclinical. So just like courses and things like genetics, biochemistry, immunology, and then more clinically based subjects like cardiology, GI, endocrine, et cetera, et cetera. So you take two years of that and then you do a year of clinical rotations where you'll go around and you'll do like a month on medicine and a month on family medicine, surgery, psychiatry, <laughs> emergency medicine, etc. And then during your fourth year, you have a more chill time to kind of do elective clinical rotations and um, apply to residency and do things like that. The way Penn does it, which I actually ended up, you know, really wanting to go to Penn because of the way they do it. They do a year and a half of preclinical and then you do your year of clinical rotations, um, and then you take step one, which is the first step of the U.S. medical licensing exam that you need in order to apply to residency. And then you'll do your like year and a half of electives and like research and traveling and applying for residency and all of that. I mentioned that Penn does it a little bit differently just because you take step one after your clinical rotations apparently helps a lot because the exam is presented in clinical vignettes and having that sort of clinical knowledge base really helps put everything into context. The NVME recently, I don't know if this is something that is even like on the radar for most people, but they like changed step one to be pass fail instead of giving students a numeric uh, score, which ultimately could have ramifications for the way that people are selected for residency. Because as of 
the prior system, step one was the biggest factor, as they told us, in um, determining where you ended up for residency because it is such a competitive process. Residency programs would use it as sort of like a filter to determine which students they wanted to like let in through the door. And now that it's pass-fail, people are concerned that the decision will be made more around research publication numbers or the prestige of the school that students go to or like the connections that someone has in their letters of recommendation, which is overall viewed as like a less equitable way to decide on who gets to go where for residency because students at like the quote unquote lower tier schools will no longer have step one as a sort of silver bullet to get them into the better, better ranked programs. You know, I like, I kind of look down on that decision just because I think overall our system is incredibly inequitable and we shouldn't be taking further steps to, you know, make it more so. It's a it's a decision that I had no factor in making. But so yeah, it really sucks for people that go to schools that typically use step one as an equalizer to get into quote unquote better residency programs, but now we'll no longer have that as a way to show their intelligence, right? Um, and so, you know, it really raises the question of how do we evaluate what makes someone a good potential future doctor? And there's a lot of really interesting debates kind of going around the medical community at this time. But besides the point, after step one, there's a couple other exams you have to take, but they're less equally weighted as compared to step one. Um, you'll take them in your fourth year and then um, in your intern year of residency. So the the part of med med school and that whole process that people typically ask about is match day and the match process, which I've always found to be really interesting and exciting. For those who are unaware, you essentially apply to a bunch of programs as a fourth year in medical school, and then you'll go around and do interviews across the country or wherever to these residency programs. And then you create this rank list of where you most want to go. So kind of like a sorority fraternity, (laughs) like Greek life process, you rank one to ask like which residency programs you want to go to and then the residency programs will do the same for the applicants and then there's this like huge algorithm that they'll use to match up or optimize the most applicants with where they most want to go with the programs in which applicants they most want to admit and then there's a day in like mid to late march where they'll have this like big ceremony and everyone opens an envelope that shows where they matched at and that's where you go so that's kind of what's at the end of this part of this chapter of my life for me. Um, And I'm not there yet, but I'm already nervous and excited and everything all at once. Yeah, just to provide a little bit more context, the reason why the match day is so intense and people get very anxious about it because on average, I think they say you apply to 50 schools. That means you have to fly to 50 schools. The application process is very expensive. And obviously medical students, you're already borrowing from your future income. So it's like thousands of dollars you're paying out of your pocket. And then based on the ranking from 1 to 50, and some, I think, programs you have to apply to 100 plus, yeah. that means you rank from 1 to 100, and you go into one school. Wow. So I just wanted to provide that because that's the reason why people cry on this match day. And I think <laughs> everyone in this country at the same time, they get matched, right? Yeah. It's like one universal one day. for everyone. Mm-hmm. So I believe it's like March 8th or March 20th. I forgot. Yeah. But yeah, so it's that's... a big deal. I can't even <laughs> imagine... And fathom the level of anxiety and the level of anticipation you guys go through because that's four years of intensive hyper intensive hard work yeah so and then residency programs can be anywhere from three to eight years so you're committing a large chunk of your young adulthood to this this program like it it's everything to you um so yeah it's it's a high emotion day and 
Um, although I'm taking the year out and not going to go through it until 2022, it's already something that's deeply on my radar. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.